Welcome to the QNS Podcast. Each episode, we take a look back at a week's worth of news in Queens. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jacob K. And I'm Angelica Acevedo. Coming up on today's show, Melinda Katz became Queens' next DA. But criminal justice reformers worry she's already off on the wrong foot. Also, a 10-year-old boy was killed by a sanitation truck in Lefrak City. And an interview with Astoria Assemblywoman Aravela Samotas about her legislative priorities in 2020, criminal justice reform, and the upcoming census. Let's burrow in. Melinda Katz became the first female district attorney in Queens this past week. Her inauguration was held at St. John's University, and there were a host of happy attendees, including Congressman Greg Meeks, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, Attorney General Tish James, and Mayor Bill de Blasio. For a lot of people in the crowd and across Queens, Katz represents a step forward in criminal justice reform. But if you remember, Katz was not the most progressive person running for DA. That title belongs to Tiffany Caban, who, after a long battle, lost the Democratic primary for the seat. But it was a battle, and the election was very close. And Caban supporters have not forgotten that. A group of activists from Court Watch NYC and Our Progressive Future gathered outside the inauguration to protest Katz and her failure to follow through with her promise to end cash bail completely on her first day in office. Katz did, however, address the issue in her speech. And finally, I would like to talk about bail reform. This this is an issue which has gained a lot of press attention of late. And these are issues we need to address. But let me start by saying this. My office is committed to ending cash bail in all forms, period. But it must be done right and cannot be achieved totally until we have a system in place for ensuring that defendants indeed come back to court. We cannot keep using a system that is discriminatory and incarcerates people who have not been convicted of any crimes, which has devastating effects on far too many families in our borough. In the very first case to land on Katz's desk about a week before her inauguration on January 1st, Katz's assistant district attorney asked for $50,000 bail for a defendant charged with first-degree robbery. The defendant allegedly stole a cell phone after threatening its owner with a sharp object. The judge ended up setting bail for $2,000. We'll bring you more on the bail issue and on Katz's reign as district attorney in coming episodes. On Tuesday, January 7th, the driver of a New York City sanitation truck fatally struck a 10-year-old boy in Corona's Lefrak City. His mother was also hit and was taken to the hospital in critical condition. The driver struck the pedestrians while making a right turn at the intersection of 57th Avenue and 97th Street around 7 a.m. That same day, Councilman Francisco Moya and the Lefrak City Tenants Association held a vigil at the intersection where the tragic crash occurred. Moya linked the crash to an epidemic of pedestrian fatalities both in Corona and across the city. We need to do more than just ask for prayers. Uh, this really is becoming an epidemic. He also urged the Department of Transportation to take action along the stretch of 57th Avenue with street calming measures and a traffic study. Uh, we've even asked them to do uh, a bigger study to look at uh, the different ways in which uh, Pedestrians can be safer on the thoroughfare on 57th and also on Junction Boulevard. In the past 30 days, 18 pedestrians have been killed by cars on New York City streets. That's about one person dying every day and a half. At the same time as the vigil, Community Education Council 24, which represents Corona, 
began their scheduled meeting. Parents at the meeting were frustrated. They said that they've been advocating for safer streets, more crossing guards, and better protection for their children for years. Check back on QNS.com for updates on this story. Assemblywoman Aravella Samotas joined us here in Bayside this week. She was first elected to office in 2011, and she's been representing the 36th Assembly District in Northwest Queens ever since. Here's our conversation. Assemblywoman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here. How has the new year been treating you? Wonderful. I, we've been playing with my daughter's host of toys that she received for uh, the holidays. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. Uh, I'm an immigrant who came here with my parents when I was six months old. Uh, my mom and dad were small business owners. They operated a delicatessen in Woodside. Um, I'm a wife and the mother of a seven-year-old, and I'm also a public servant, as you know. Um, I am an attorney who, at some point in my career, wanted to focus my skills and time on helping more people, and I ran for office. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your legislative wins from last year? Of course. I had a remarkable year last year. Um, I was able to ensure that workers in New York State have the strongest harassment and discrimination protections in their workplace. Um, It was a multi-part bill, um, a lot of protections that are now realized by our workers. But the most important one is how we classify discrimination and harassment. And it is easier now for workers to get their, to actually go to court and um, advocate for their rights. And it was a seminal win, and we now have the strongest laws in the nation protecting our workers. We also were able to end the statute, uh, we, we were able to expand the statute of limitations for uh, certain rape crimes, for second and third degree rapes, there used to be very small period of time that victims could go to court and prosecutors could either prosecute criminals or um, victims could have their day in court. We were able to expand that time frame because it takes longer for uh, rape survivors sometimes to process their trauma and actually move ahead with their with their cases. I was also very proud that um, Families now have access to IVF coverage. Um, We have a lot of families who are infertile in the state and in the country. And unfortunately, insurance companies weren't mandated to provide that coverage for families who are suffering and dealing with infertility. And now certain insurance plans must provide this coverage. So expanding access to affordable health care has always been very important to me. Um, I also was able to fight for small businesses. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I'm the daughter of former small, retired small business owners. And I remember what it used to be like when my parents used to be hit with a fine for some unknown rule that was, um, that was created um, 
they, they did not have the resources or means to keep up with all of the regulatory changes. And I was proud that this year uh, the, the governor signed into law a bill that I drafted to make sure that businesses are kept more apprised of these changing rules and given more time to comply. In addition to all of this, I'm very proud that um, last year I was able to allocate um, $5 million to my local schools. Um, I'm, the, I'm the product of the public school system, and it's important to me that our students and our teachers have the resources that they need to create wonderful environments for our children to learn. Um, I was also able to um, to grant certain uh, certain funds to um, an advocacy group called Make the Road that does so much for immigrant families because I, as an immigrant, knew how important it was to make sure that immigrant immigrants in this state have access to all of the to all of the resources that this that our state provides. So, looking forward to twenty twenty. Um, one of your big items on your legislative agenda is the Rape Is Rape bill. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I introduced uh, the Redefining Rape Bill, or the Rape is Rape Bill, uh, back in 2012 to expand how we define rape in New York. I won't get into the nitty-gritty details because they're cumbersome, um, but I will tell you that we do not define rape in New York the way the state does not define rape the way the layperson understands it. And it's important that the law is more uh, trauma-informed, and not just for victims and survivors, but also for um, legislators and prosecutors to understand what constitutes a rape in New York. Um, so that is something that I've been happy that the Assembly has been passing since 2013. It's a bill that um, really is my brainchild that we've been pushing and passing since 2013, and I am very hopeful and a little confident that this year will also pass the Senate. Also, you're looking to put together legislation that would require the district attorney to disclose the number of sexual assaults that they prosecute. I didn't know that was not being done before. Actually, this year there was a large report and investigation where when the facts were um, came to light, it was astonishing that the NYPD was actually not prosecuting certain rape crimes. What is known right now under the, under the law as a criminal sexual act, which is an attack against uh, a man, or certain crimes against men or women weren't being reported or prosecuted. And um, only the very traditional rape cases were reported. And that, you know, leads a lot of us to, what it does is it allows certain statistics to be skewed. You wouldn't think that so many people are getting tacked if the number of traditional rape cases is going down. However, if that definition is inaccurate and encompassing all of the crimes that the late person would describe as rape, it, it is misleading. So I introduced a bill to make sure that district attorneys and law enforcement um, actually report these statistics, not only how many crimes they were committed and how many reports they received, but how many they actually prosecuted. Because it's important that victims and survivors who come forward actually get their day in court. 
And it's important that the public restores their faith um, that the um, that our system will actually fight for their rights. I want to talk about the youthful offender bill as well. So how, do, how does this align with like the general criminal justice reform movement? The youthful offender bill or the YO bill, as we call it, um, was actually a concept that was discussed during the initial criminal justice reforms. However, because there were so many moving parts to um, that idea, it was dropped out from the final legislation. The way that the issue came to me was that I read a an, uh, an opinion by uh, by a ju- by a Queens Court criminal judge, Judge uh, Zayas, who had a worker who was trying to get her criminal record expunged. She was um, she was a middle aged woman who had who who was who had a criminal record from her youth. Basically, the long and the short of it was that she held somebody back during a fight in high school. Fast forward 20-something years, she was denied a job because of this criminal record that she didn't even know that she had because this occurrence happened during her youth. She wasn't even, I think she was 17 years old. She went to the court to petition to have her record cleared so she can get this employment. And the judge was so irate that there was no process for him to do that, that he wrote an opinion, a very, very thoughtful opinion, asking the legislature to create a function for him to do so. Uh, Well, I actually read that opinion, um, and um, I was shocked that we did not accomplish that reform during the negotiation of the very meaningful um, criminal justice reforms that uh, we did a few years back. So I drafted a bill in w- with the help of Judge Zayas himself, and uh, then with the help of the um, New York ACLU and a couple of other groups to make sure that we were addressing this issue. What the bill does is give New Yorkers who had committed, who had, who have a criminal record from their youth and were allowed to have the youthful offender status but were not granted it, an opportunity to petition the court again after five years to get that record clear. I mean, you can think that sometimes when you're in your youth, you might have an attitude and you might, you know, maybe the judge didn't think that you deserved this status. However, having your record expunged allows you to have fruitful employment in the future. It gives you, it opens up the opportunities, economic opportunities for you that you might not otherwise have, like this Jane Doe in the Judge Zayas matter. Um, She wasn't given a job because she had this record. It's important that we realize that the criminal justice system has to be about rehabilitation and giving people the opportunity to move forward from something, not creating a record that keeps them back. And depending on somebody's, how they rehabilitate themselves and what they do for society, they should have an opportunity to petition the court again to get that status. And I'm very proud that uh, just recently I was, um, took part in a hearing in the assembly that had invited certain, um, certain advocacy groups and certain district attorneys who are all hopeful that we can actually get this bill accomplished next year. I'm 
proud that the assembly we we actually passed it last year last year but this year we have to make sure that the senate does so as well on that hope um i i don't know if the two are super related but we see now like a little bit of pushback about bail reform um do you think that that will influence a youthful offenders bill chances at all i don't think so it should not the, those are two separate issues. Uh, the youthful offender YO bill has to do when you commit, when you do something stupid when you're a young kid, should you not have an opportunity to, you know, expunge your record so that you can actually move on with your life. There's so many instances where I hear about um, New Yorkers who committed some infraction when they were 15, 16, 17 years old, and then they went to the military or they turned their lives around and they have families, yet they are not able to have a, they, they're not able to completely move forward with their lives because they have this record hanging over their head. With respect to bail reform, we have to really think of the topic accurately. Bail has been used to prevent certain segments of the population from getting out of jail. When that happens, prosecutors and the government have an upper hand during what's known as bail nego uh, uh, plea negoci negotiations because no one wants to stay in jail. No, no New Yorker wants to be in jail. So those who can afford it pay bail and are released. Those who can't are in jail. When they're in jail, it gives the government an upper hand during plea bargaining negotiations. And they are more inclined to plea even if they're innocent. The truth is that innocence is of no relevance during plea bargaining. You just want to get out of jail. And it is not fair for those New Yorkers who are not financially able to be released to have to sit in jail while waiting for their case to be heard in court. And that is the reforms that we accomplished this year with bail. And we have to keep these issues clear in our mind. I don't think that we should give prosecutors back their leverage and upper hand in plea negotiations. The Sixth Amendment guarantees a right to a speedy trial. A person can be arrested, and that's fine if, if a crime, they believe that they have evidence of a crime being committed. However, everyone should do their jobs and make sure that the speedy trial occurs. And jail shouldn't be a function that prevents those who are economically disadvantaged and poor to have to sit in prison while their case is going to be heard. That is not only unfair, it is unjust, it is not what we should accomplish as New Yorkers, it is inhumane, it is immoral, and it's a violation of the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. So let's turn to your community a little bit. Um, what are some big issues uh, facing your assembly district this well, year? Well, the biggest issue and the most important one and the one that I've been focusing on for um, several months is the census that is coming up. Sadly, Northwest Queens and Astoria, Long Island City in my assembly district is the most undercounted in the state of New York. You may be surprised if if you're uh, if you're a resident and you're a constituent, but I have the smallest assembly district in New York State. Why is that? 
because during the last census, many of my constituents did not fill out the census. And unless there is accurate um, data that is received by by the Census Bureau, they create districts that um, are really not, they're not representative of the of what's on the ground. So I have a lot of immigrant families who are suspicious about the census. Until recently, there was going to be a citizenship question and there, um, on the census. And thankfully, it's not. But that leaves a lot of my constituents suspicious. And it's, I'm very concerned about making sure that we all fill out our census. I've been hosting many um, forums at neighbors' homes. We've been having a lot of different roundtables to try to make sure that we do everything we can and ensure that every Astorian resident, every constituent in the 36th Assembly District fills out that form. Because without it, we lose money for our hospitals. We lose money that should go to our schools, for our uh, infrastructure, for our roads, for social services. There is so much at stake. And the truth is, anyone who's lived or visited Astoria or has lived in Astoria for five years knows that we have expanded in size. We have not shrunk in size. You can just see from all of the um, new housing developments that have been that are being built. We're not losing population, and we did not lose population. But unfortunately, because you, you know my constituency is not used to filling out their census, there's a lot of new residents who may not think that they should fill it out or that they have to fill it out, um, and, or some residents who. You know, some people who just don't consider it important enough, it's important that we stress how important it actually is. Okay, so also in 2020, it's, a, it's an election year, um, and you have a challenger who has been endorsed by the DSA. Um, and we've seen like this progressive wave across Queens since the election of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. What, what do you think about this movement, this progressive movement? You know, this people led movement. It's really inspiring and has accomplished so many great things already. Um, one example, uh, the Amazon deal that everyone thought was going to be inevitable, but it was stopped. You know, I opposed Amazon coming to uh, Western Queens from the very beginning. I never signed on to the letter inviting them to come to Queens. Why? You know, I talked before about my background as the daughter of former small business owners, retired small business owners. Um, they used to have a small delicatessen in Woodside. I could imagine what would happen to the rents for small businesses and residents if Amazon came in. And that is why I was never, I never invited them to come in the first place. If you would have asked me then if, there would be a groundswell of support um, and neighbors banding together and standing side by side to oppose Amazon from coming, I would have been shocked. I, I would have been surprised. But the truth is that the reason that the groundswell of support occurred was because everybody was concerned about affordability. And, you know, the truth is when we stand together, as neighbors, we accomplish great 
things. So I am excited about the new activism. I'm excited about constituents who never had an idea who their elected officials were to actually be engaged and to want to get involved. And for me, it's an opportunity to get to know uh, my neighbors and my new neighbors better. Um, I've already knocked on, I think, 16,000 doors uh, just in the summer up until the fall. So I'm very excited about um, what I'm hearing on the ground and the fact that my constituents are excited about what's to come. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a working mom, as I mentioned before, with a seven-year-old. I've met so many parents with young children, and we all have the same concerns. Good schools, good transportation, a clean environment, and good health care. That's what we all care about. And Progressive Wave will only help New York State and our country achieve those goals. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Angelica. Thank you so much, Jacob. It's been wonderful to be here, and I wish everyone a happy new year. Looking for something to do this week? We got you covered. Taino Theater's Bully the Bully, Artists Against Hate is an original mixed media work featuring poetry, scenes, and dance. And they're back for their third run. The show will drive home the importance of human connection and kindness in today's charged political climate. It's taking place on Friday, January 17th at the Main Street Theater and Dance Alliance, located at 548 Main Street, from 7 to 10 p.m. Tickets are $20. Come view Jordan Peele's 2017 award-winning film, Get Out, at the historic Lewis Latimer House in downtown Flushing, on Saturday, January 19th. Reserve a seat online to attend at lewislatimerhouse.org. Admission is free and the film will be screening from 2 to 4 p.m. Celebrate the Lunar New Year in Flushing at the opening of A Good Beginning Here, cross-cultural exhibit. All eight artists can trace their roots back to China, Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. The exhibit runs through February 17th, but the opening is on Friday, January 17th from 6 to 8 p.m. at Flushing Town Hall. Admission is free. That's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in. And make sure to head to QNS.com to get more Queen's news. This episode was produced by Jacob K. Co-written and co-hosted by me, Angelica Acevedo, and Jacob, who also edited and mixed the show. Our reporters are Jenna Bakal, Emily Davenport, Kaloro Mohammed, Bill Perry, Max Parrott, and me. Our editor is Zach Goelb. Music by Blue Dial Sessions. This podcast is brought to you by Schnips Media.